the title of the talk is Between Persuasion and Coercion, Protestas Holding Accountable. And this is part two of uh, the planned project that I have for my dissertation. So let me start by giving a little bit of an introduction to the project. So broadly speaking, my goal for today is going to be to try to show how we can use tools and ideas from moral philosophy to help us go uh, think through a problem in political philosophy, namely the justification of forceful protest. To do this, my strategy throughout the talk will be as follows. The first two parts of the talk will be focused on setting out two philosophical problems. The first, the first problem is one that we're centrally concerned with here. That's the problem of forceful protest. The second problem is a problem for moral philosophy. I want to suggest that the two problems share a structure and therefore that a solution to the problem of sanctioning will help us to think through a solution to the problem of forceful protest. So in the latter part of the talk, I'm going to sketch out a solution to the problem of sanctioning, and then I'm going to try to think through how it might help offer us a window into thinking through the problem of forceful protest. That's the, the very structure. Okay. Let me also give you a little bit of a preview of the solution that I want to propose here. I'm going to aim to show that each of the problems uh, involves a tension between force uh, and constraints on our communicative efforts. But I'm going to argue, and holding others accountable, sometimes force is essential to communication. The two are compatible um, and indeed rely on one another. This means that if we interpret um, protest as a form of holding accountable, forceful protest as a form of holding accountable, we may see that its force is sometimes compatible with communication as well. Okay, so let's start with the problem of forceful protest. I think to get into the question, it's probably helpful to start by saying a little bit about what I mean by forceful protest. Um, I'm not gonna try to examine the concept of force here or to break it down into its components parts. I think doing that uh, would be a difficult undertaking just because of uh, the nature of the problem. Um, but it also wouldn't really help us figure out what forceful protest is. And that's because um, when I talk about what forceful protest is, I mean to talk about a wide range of protest actions that are often described as forceful. These are things that kind of come up in uh, political discourse. Because the notion of force is tricky, um, that concept of force can include a lot of different things. So sometimes, for instance, uh, even philosophical writing on protest, force is taken to imply violence or coercion, or even to be synonymous with these concepts. It certainly seems that violent and coercive protest uh, are the kinds of things that we would call forceful. But at the same time, I think we should be careful not to limit our talk of force to just violence and uh, coercion. I think the best way to see uh, just what I am trying to get at when I talk about forceful protest is to look at some examples. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna have some big pictures um, to kind of get across the point. So this picture comes from the blockades uh, at Ferry Creek in British Columbia. So protesters there aim to stop logging companies um, in incursions into old growth forest on the grounds of environmental preservation. In response, logging companies have filed injunctions against the protesters, which have then been enforced by the RCMP um, through the use of all kinds of um, tactics which are designed to quell protests, such as the use of pepper spray and beatings and things like that. Um, in response to uh, the crackdowns on these protests, protesters have found ways to slow the advance of logging machinery. Um, one such way that's gotten a lot of coverage in the news uh, is what's called a sleeping dragon. Uh, in this tactic, protesters dig a hole in the ground and fill it with concrete. Um, and then they stick a PVC pipe in the middle 
and have a protester put their arm down the pipe. Um, the arm is then secured using a, a length of chain. And the idea is that um, to extract a protester from one of these holds, as they're called, um, involves several hours worth of jackhammer work. Sometimes you need to bring an excavator. Um, and, and doing that uh, has to be, in extricating them from the hold, you have to proceed with the utmost care because you know using all of this heavy machinery very close to, as you can see here, someone's head uh, is quite dangerous. Okay. So here we see force used to, to stop the advance of logging machinery uh, into the old growth forest. Here's a different sort of example, um, but with, a, I think, a similar kind of tactic. Um, so this is a, a picture of the current Insulate Britain protests in Britain. Uh, Insulate Britain is a protest movement over climate change that's been given particular salience by COP26, a global climate change conference currently taking place in Glasgow. The stated aim of Insulate Britain is for the government to commit to insulating all British homes by 2030 as a step towards climate action on climate change. To pursue the same, protesters have taken to gluing themselves down to uh, the ground in the middle of the road. And the idea is that by um, stopping traffic in a road, they're putting pressure on the government uh, to take action on climate change. So here we have a similar sort of action to the Ferry Creek, um, but it's a little bit different, whereas in Ferry Creek, protesters are actively aiming to stop the advance of machinery. Um, and so they're uh, stopping the operation of the thing that they're trying to stop. Uh, in Insulate Britain, um, the protest is somewhat indirect in the sense that they're putting the pressure on the government to stop doing something or to take action on something, um, but they're not directly stopping the thing that they want to stop. Okay, here's another example. Um, many of you might be familiar with this next photo. Uh, it's been widely circulated for the last year. The photo shows an incomplete housing complex that has been set ablaze by protesters in Minneapolis last year uh, during the protests over the murder of George Floyd. This protest has become one of the set of photos that are emblematic of those protests, both in its singular impact on the viewer, it's very visually striking, um, and in what it represents. The building itself was set to be an affordable housing complex. And so many have read the, the picture as a symbol of what they view as the counterproductive rage of protesters, something like that many of them low-income themselves. To others, however, the photo might appear to represent an expression of indignation at a history of um, you know, fraught tensions between the citizens of Minneapolis and the police department there. In any case, we have here an example of what looks to be the use of some kind of force in protest. You know, it's very uh, clearly explosive, uh, almost literally. Um, but it seems to go beyond obstruction as in the other cases and begins to look more like something like violence. Oops. Um, okay, here's another example. Many of you might also be familiar with this photo or familiar with the circumstances in which this photo was taken. Um, this is a photo of the January 6th siege on Capitol Hill in the US. Uh, as many of you likely know, um, on January 6th, a crowd incensed at the loss of Donald Trump in the 2020 federal election um, took to Capitol Hill and attempted to storm the building. Um, it's not clear exactly what the aim of the crowd was. It seems like um, many people came into it with different ideas of what was going on. Some people certainly seem to see themselves as starting a revolution. Others seem to see themselves as um, you know, stopping um, the putting into effect of what they viewed as a fraudulent election. 
In any case, some participants were later found to have carried zip ties and weapons and to have searched the offices uh, for the offices of political figures they ostensibly opposed. So here the concept of protest seems to kind of break down. Um, whatever, however many goals the rioters might have had, it seems kind of strange to describe them as protesting the election results so much as they were attempting to overturn them or do something else um, a little more worrying. Um, but in any case, the siege certainly offers an example of a use of force and uh, a use of force in the context of like a mass social movement. Okay, one final example. I don't have a picture for this one, um, but I think it's helpful to uh, uh, draw directly from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so in 1963, King helped to lead a civil rights campaign in Birmingham, Alabama, putting pressure on merchants in the town to, uh, through a program of economic withdrawal, boycotting. Um, so he famously wrote a letter after having been arrested there um, in defense of uh, the nonviolent protest tactics he used. Here I have a direct quote from King. He writes, nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. So here again, force pops up more explicitly, but in a context that we don't uh, typically associate with the use of force and protest. You know, uh, peaceful or um, civilly disobedient civil rights protesters are typically taken to be uh, paradigm examples of civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience. And so the use of force here is interesting and puzzling. Okay, so those are my examples. A question you might have after considering those is, what do these have in common? I think it might turn out that there's nothing essential that they have in common. Um, again, I'm not committed to saying that there's some unifying concept of force that binds all of these together and use, gives us a, you know, a unique insight into them. Uh, alternatively, it might turn out that they have something in common, but that what they have in common is not something that all cases of forceful protest have in common. All the same, I want to suggest that they share a resemblance, that they can be contrasted with forms of protest which are obviously communicative. Unlike other forms of protest, they don't clearly involve rational engagement with others. Um, I think it's helpful here to borrow language from Hugo Bedeau, uh, who wrote one of the kind of seminal articles on civil disobedience and political philosophy. He describes direct action as the dissenter using their own body as a lever with which to pry loose the government's policy. I think the language is very nice and evocative here, but it also gives you a clear idea of um, at least the, the flavor of the difference between um, force and communication. Understood in these terms, uh, forceful protest is likely to be illegal. Um, force definitely seems more likely to cross those sorts of boundaries. Um, all the same, we need not think that forceful protest is always illegal. Further, we don't have to pay attention to just what Badeau means by direct action to get the sense that uh, this is a helpful way of describing forceful protest. The goal of forceful protest is not to convince the government to change its mind, um, but rather to get it to act through the use of force. Though, as we've seen, where exactly force enters the picture is still kind of unclear. Okay. So we haven't quite given a definition of force, but hopefully um, we've said enough about it, or hopefully I've said enough about it, that you have somewhat of an idea of, of what we're talking about when we talk about forceful protest. Um, now that we have a clear idea of that, 
uh, I think we can start to think about the problem that it raises, the problem that I want to consider today. Put simply, the problem is this. It seems wrong for us to force the government to do as we wish. If we want to get our way, we can demonstrate publicly, we can vote our conscience, we can argue our case. These are kind of uncontroversial modes of political engagement. It seems wrong, though, for us to force our beliefs on others. That's kind of the intuitive idea behind the problem of forceful protest. Now, you might note that there are a number of different ways to make an argument um, that has this conclusion. Um, so you might think, for instance, um, that the problem of forceful protest arises because forceful protest is undemocratic. The idea here being that forceful protest uh, challenges the equal authority of each citizen to determine how society should be run by um, making it so that they get their way regardless of democratic consent. Alternatively, some worry that forceful protest is likely to harm other valuable interests. Um, so if you engage in forceful protest, you might think you're likely to harm others who aren't involved in the protest. In the case of road blockades, for instance, you know, on the less harmful end, you um, might make people late to work. On the more harmful end, you might stop an ambulance from getting to where it really needs to be, something like that. Um, you might also think that forceful protest um, involves the use of methods that uh, make it likely to be counterproductive. Um, you might think that ideally protests ought to be persuasive um, and any you know, temporary gains that you get through uh, using force to get your way are soon to come undone. Lastly, you might think that um, forceful protest is uncivil. And so to the extent that it's illegal and to the extent that the really the only justified form of illegal protest that we can think of as civil disobedience, uh, it might seem then that forceful protest is destined to be unjustified. Okay, these are not the only ways that you can frame the problem, but it hopefully gives you a sense of uh, how they arise in the literature um, and how different these, these different framings of the problem can be. So we might be tempted at this point, I think, to just throw our hands up and give up on the problem altogether. Um, you know, we haven't really been able to give uh, a completely satisfying definition of force. And it also seems like this problem that we're trying to put our finger on um, can bubble up in a number of different ways. Um, and in so many different ways that it's difficult to say just what it is that makes them all the same. I want to suggest that um, there is some kind of common thread between these different problems. And that common thread uh, is an assumption that protests cannot be both forceful and communicative in some meaningful sense. I'm not gonna be offer, able to offer a full argument for this claim, the claim that they all depend on this uh, assumption. And I think also that some articulations of the problem won't make use of this assumption. Um, but I think a kind of intuitive way to see uh, how the assumption might be presupposed by these different objections is to note that if protest could be both forceful and communicative, it would seem strange to draw a number of conclusions um, that proponents of this view seem to draw. Um, so to show what I mean by that, let me look at an example that comes from the literature on civil disobedience. So Peter Singer here, uh, I have a block quote from him. Um, in Democracy and Disobedience, Singer argues that civil disobedience must be nonviolent because violence is always, always appears coercive to the public. I read this as being a version of the uh, democratic worry that we addressed earlier. 
that um, forceful protest is somehow undemocratic and then that undermines its claim to justification. Singer then writes that the same reasoning suggests that even nonviolent disobedience which causes great inconvenience to the majority or makes it very difficult for the decision of the majority to be implemented should also be avoided. Disobedience of this sort, though nonviolent, is an attempt to coerce and not to persuade. So note first here that we see how the language of force, coercion, and violence are entangled. Violence, it seems, is always coercive for Singer, but nonviolence can also be coercive insofar as it involves force, force here being the, the imposition of great inconvenience or something like that. Um, force and coercion, it seems, are difficult to take apart. More importantly, however, this passage relies on the assumption um, on Singer's part that forceful protest is always coercive and not communicative in the relevant sense of being persuasive. Singer concludes from this fact that nonviolent disobedience causes great inconvenience. Sorry, Singer concludes from the fact that nonviolent disobedience causes great inconvenience, um, that it is coercive. That fact alone is supposed to show that it's coercive. And I think this would be strange if he thought that protest could be both forceful and communicative. So it seems he has to think that the two are mutually exclusive. This is, of course, only one example of how the of how the assumption comes into play, but hopefully it helps to give you an idea of what's going on here. Okay. So now I think we're at a position where we can give a, a formulation of the problem of forceful protest. The problem of forceful protest is a worry that forceful protest is wrong because there's something wrong with forcing our political beliefs on others. The something wrong in the problem can be explained in a number of different ways, but all of them seem to require us to assume that protest cannot be both forceful and communicative. For if protest could be both forceful and communicative, it's not clear that it would, that it would involve force, us forcing our beliefs on others. So I'm going to suggest in a little bit, a solution to the problem will have to show that protest can be both forceful and communicative, or at least a successful solution can show that. Okay, but at this point you might just ask, well, why should we care uh, in the first place? What if forceful protest just is unjustifiable? I mean, I think many probably have a strong intuition that that's the case. Uh, we're certainly really doubtful when forceful instances of protest break out. And aside from the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. example, um, some might be inclined to just say that all of the examples I've cited are unjustified from the get-go. I think there are at least two reasons to reject this thought. Um, first, there are a number of examples like the MLK example, um, which show that there are, are uh, intuitively justified cases which seem to make use of force, um, even if we haven't yet put our finger on uh, why we think those cases are justified. It seems like we should not dismiss them out of hand, certainly um, without getting a, a better picture of what exactly the problem is with force. And second, if, as I will argue, there are kinds of communicative action between persuasion and coercion, then the assumption that protest must be like one or the other seems implausible. And so to the extent that the objections that we've considered depend on that assumption, it seems like what we have a counterexample. Okay. Having set out the problem of forceful protest, I now want to turn to talk about the second problem that we're going to take up today. This is the problem of sanctioning. Okay. So you'll have to pardon me. Um, it, we're making a little bit of a rough transition, but hopefully it will come together nicely in the end. I think the clearest way to set up this problem, the problem of sanctioning, is to begin by noting a general point about ordinary human relationships. 
Um, so I'm drawing here on P.F. Strawson, he has a, a very famous paper, Freedom and Resentment, um, where he observes that in our ordinary adult human relationships, we take up what he calls a participant attitude or stance towards one another. It is in virtue of this attitude that we are inclined to reason with, fall in love with, and feel resentment towards one another. Our adoption of this stance is part of what makes our response to a person who has wronged us different from our response to, for example, a dog who has stolen turkey from the table. When we are wronged, we hold the wrongdoer accountable, but we do not quite blame the dog in the same way as we might blame someone who did us wrong. The dog's theft of turkey is not a moral trespass. Instead, it seems to indicate something like a failure of discipline. So we're inclined to train the dog rather than to blame them. Okay, so what does that tell us? Well, I think Strawson's insight in framing this point is that our moral practices require of us a certain kind of regard for others. And it is this kind of regard that makes our moral practices distinctly moral. Adopting the participant's stance towards one another means treating them fully as moral agents. And while Strawson doesn't give us an exhaustive account of what that means, reasoning and our inclination to view actions as morally significant appear to be central to the participant's stance. We view others as fellow participants in our moral community, as equal terms in a moral relationship. So reasoning is an important feature of the participant stance and an, in a, and an important feature of this kind of regard for one another. But this doesn't mean that the participant stance, uh, that all we can do in the participant stance is reason with one another. Of course, ordinary human relationships sometimes involve us issuing demands, asking questions, giving talks, for instance, these forms of communication look different from reasoning, but are not thereby incompatible with the participant stance. Strassen is not trying to give us a catalog of actions that do and don't count as compatible with the participant stance, but instead his goal is to just gesture at a crude distinction between the way that we treat people and the way that we treat things that fall short of being people. All the same, Strassen wants us to see that ordinary human relationships are markedly different from what he calls the objective stance. The objective stance helps us to get a, more of a grip on what he means by the participant stance. To adopt the objective stance towards another, for Strawson, uh, I'm quoting here, uh, is to see him perhaps as an object of social policy, as a subject for what, in a wide range of sense, might be called treatment, as something that certainly, uh, as something certainly to be taken account, perhaps precautionary account of, to be managed or handled or cured or trained, perhaps simply to be avoided. The thought here is hopefully clear. Whatever the participant stance is, it seems that the, that the treatment of a person through manipulation, training, managing, or handling is incompatible with it. We cannot show proper regard for others when we treat them in these ways. Okay. So having said something about the participant stance, I wanna to move to a second point, uh, and the problem emerges from the conflict between these points. The second point is that in our ordinary everyday moral intercourse, we often hold one another accountable. By holding accountable here, I mean to refer to a wide range of ways of treating others, understood generally as a way of enforcing others to their, uh, sorry, enforcing or holding others to their obligations. We hold others accountable when they have certain obligations to us and to others. Further, I wanna suggest in holding others accountable, we often sanction them. That is, we subject them to some kind of unpleasant treatment in order to get them to change their conduct. If holding accountable is understood on the model of enforcement, then this point seems pretty clear. When others violate their obligations, the logic of enforcement requires us um, 
requires that we say something or that we do something in response to what they've done to hold them to their obligations. Oftentimes this might involve things like blaming or criticizing or scolding or otherwise punishing the person who's acted badly. Again, I think it helps to consider some examples here. Um, so one example might be that you were walking in the forest and you carelessly litter, and then I tell you off for making a mess. Um, a second example would be that yeah, you're living with a roommate who likes to leave the windows open all day in the winter while the heat is on um, and you scold them for wasting energy. You might tell a stranger on the subway off for putting their bag on an empty seat. I think this example is a little bit uh, less relevant now that uh, we're required to sit on every other seat on the subway, but you can imagine in normal times, I think the example is pretty clear. Um, another example is that you criticize your friend for saying some cruel things about their sister behind their back. Uh, and lastly, a child might be rude to their relative and be grounded by their mother. I think these examples suggest that sanctioning has a few features. First, it's both backwards and forwards looking. It responds to a past um, active misconduct, um, and it attempts to change that behavior in the future. And in those respects, it's backwards and forwards looking. Second, sanctioning appears to be clearly distinct from both persuasion and coercion. When I criticize you for littering, I don't try to convince you or to, or to engage you in a give and take of reasons. It's not really that kind of interaction. Instead, I tell you that you're wrong and I expect you to change your conduct. Um, likewise with you and the person on the subway. Sanctioning is one-sided in a way that persuasion is not. All the same, sanctioning appears to be different from coercion too. If I criticize you for littering and you respond by saying that I can't just force you to do whatever I want, I think we would probably agree that there's something a little bit ridiculous in your response. For one thing, in this example, at least, you're still free to litter, even if I tell you that you probably shouldn't litter. It's not like I'm going to stop you if you try to do it again. Um, I want you to change what you're doing, but I also want you to do it because you see it that it is wrong. At the very least, blaming you for littering seems warranted or justified, and it's not clear that coercion, coercing you to do as I wish can ever be. Okay. So the problem of sanctioning emerges once we ask, once we ask, how exactly are sanctions supposed to change a person's conduct? We've mentioned that they aim at doing this, um, but how is that supposed to come about? I think a kind of common sense reading of sanctioning would be to say that they discourage bad behavior through the imposition of incentives. Uh, when I sanction you, I'm effectively saying, do X or else you'll suffer some unpleasant consequences. But if that's the case, then sanctioning looks more like training and manipulation than it does reasoning. In sanctioning you, on that reading of sanctioning, I attach some negative consequences to a certain behavior to try to get you to stop it. So if I scold you for being rude to me, my goal is just to make it so that when you are rude, something bad happens to the point that you stop being rude to me. Sanctioning on this view is indistinguishable from conditioning, and so it appears incompatible with the participant stance. For the participant stance requires us to, to engage with one another rationally rather than through things like training and manipulation. While we might train a dog when they act badly, we shouldn't do the same to a person. So it seems we must find a different way of understanding sanctioning. Okay, so that's the problem of sanctioning. Sanctioning seems wrong because it seems incompatible with the participant stance, at least on an everyday understand, like a common sense understanding of what sanctioning does. And as we've seen, this tension is the result of conflict between a common sense understanding of sanctioning 
and the requirements of the participant stance. I think this is particularly troubling because holding accountable and sanctioning, if sanctioning is part of holding accountable, as I've held that it is, is something that we should want to be compatible with the participant stance. If it turned out that sanctioning was incompatible with the participant stance, it would mean that many of the ways we respond to wrongdoing are themselves incompatible with the basic terms of morality. Okay, so before moving on to try to tackle these problems, let's briefly restate and compare the problems to one another so you can get a sense of their structure. The problem of coercive protest, or forceful protest as they called it, claims that forceful protest seems wrong um, because it involves forcing our political beliefs on others. The problem of sanctioning, on the other hand, claims that sanctioning seems wrong because it is incompatible with the participant's stance. It's hopefully clear that the problems share a structure. In each case, we're challenged to render a putatively communicative action, in one case forceful protest, in the other sanctioning, compatible with constraints on our communicative efforts. In, in one case, the constraints have to do with things like democracy, things like the interests of others, and in the other case, they have to do with the basic requirements of morality. Of course, there are some important disanalogies which make it so that we have to be careful in approaching the problems. The problems have different normative flavors in that while the problem of forceful protest might be framed in democratic terms, in terms of rights, in terms of a bunch of different things, uh, the problem of sanctioning relies on observations about the requirements of everyday morality. Secondly, the constraints are of different kinds. If forceful protest fails on democratic grounds, it may simply have some moral strikes against it. But if sanctioning fails to satisfy the requirements of the participant stance, it may seem to fail to count as a part of holding others accountable altogether. Lastly, the problems seem to warrant different solutions. It's essential to show that sanctioning as such is not incompatible with the participant stance. But it's not essential to show the same of force as such. As I've tried to uh, say here, I'm taking no view on what force as such is. And so it would be compatible with the solution to the problem of forceful protest to say that in some cases, forceful protest is simply uh, unjustified. So what that means is that um, the kinds of solutions that the problems are going to require are going to be pretty different. Um, given these disanalogies, we shouldn't expect that the problems have an identical or even fully analogous solutions. But I think a a, their common structure means that a solution to the problem of sanctioning will help us with the problem of forceful protest. I won't argue for this point on its own, but I'll try to show it in the rest of the talk. So now we're at part three of the project. This is where my positive view starts to come up, um, which I've called the communicative model of sanctioning. So in this part, I'm gonna try to offer a solution to the problem of sanctioning, which will help us to think about protest. I think we can start by making a fresh start on our thinking about sanctions. Um, we've seen at least one way to, th to think about sanctions that didn't work. We noted that an obvious way to understand sanctioning is as the creation of incentives, um, but that seemed wrong because it was incompatible with the participant stance. I wanna suggest that we start from a different claim. Sanctions don't imp just impose hard treatment. They also say something. They say something to the person that they're addressed to. Note that all of our previous examples of sanctioning involved one person saying something to another for a particular reason. When I scold you for littering, I don't just impose a burden on you through treating you harshly, I say something about your action and try to get you to recognize it. So what does sanctioning say? A partial answer, I think, is that it affirms or vindicates a value. In my littering example, my sanctioning seems to affirm that you ought not litter. What's more, 
my sanctioning seems uniquely capable of this kind of affirmation or vindication. We don't respond to wrongdoing by remarking to no one in particular that that, that that kind of action would be wrong. Instead, we blame or we hold people accountable. Um, why might this be the case? What makes it so that sanctioning is uniquely the right response to this kind of conduct? I want to suggest that the explanation has to do with the force of sanctioning. What makes sanctioning distinct from remarking to no one in particular is that sanctioning imposes some more or less material hardship. It does so in a way that is addressed to the wrongdoer. This imposition of material hardship, this force as it were, is part of what gives sanctioning the character of sanctioning. And accordingly, it is part of what makes it work as a way of enforcing an ought. If that's right, then it seems that force is an essential part of the communicative element of sanctioning. Now, as we've just noted, it seems like sanctioning is in some sense addressed to the wrongdoer in particular, but it also seems to serve a public function. Sometimes when we sanction people, we intend to do so to make an example of them. If I call you out for littering in front of your friends, I'm not just calling you out for littering in particular, I'm also affirming generally to the group that one ought not litter. Um, they're a part of my audience too. So it seems like sanctions might be doing two important things. First, they serve this um, public function of general affirmation or vindication, but they also affirm or vindicate a value or ought to the wrongdoer. In respect to the latter function, sanctions seem to be a form of what I'll call moral address. In sanctioning you, I affirm an ought in such a way as to address you. I think two further points about sanctioning follow from this observation. And these points, I want to suggest, suggest constraints on what can be counted as a proper instance of sanctioning. Okay, so the first point is that sanctioning seems to be subject to what I'll call an alignment condition, according to which uh, an act of sanctioning has to aim at its target, changing their conduct for the reason that their past conduct was wrong. To see the idea here, we can return to the example of you littering. When I scold you, I want you to stop littering, but not just for any reason, as we've noted. If you stop littering just because I was mad at you um, and you wanted me to stop being mad at you, it would seem like something has gone wrong. I want you to stop littering when I scold you for littering because littering is wrong. I want you to see that littering is wrong and to change your conduct accordingly not because I'm mad at you, not because of any other reason. So, the align so by the alignment condition, my sanctioning aims at an alignment of reasons. I want you to take up an act on the ought which made, you, made me sanction you in the first place. In the case of littering, the relevant ought is that you ought not litter. Okay. Second, sanctioning also seems subject to a transparency condition which holds that an act of sanctioning has to aim at the target changing their conduct for the reason that the sanctioner endorses. Again, in the example of littering, if I wanted you to, um, sorry. Again, the clearest example of uh, illustration of this point is through examples. Um, imagine again that you litter and I scold you. But in scolding you, I secretly don't believe that littering is wrong. Uh, I'm pretending that I do, but I don't actually. I don't have any moral stake in the matter. And maybe I even regularly enjoy littering myself as a special treat. In this case, it seems something different has gone wrong. My act of sanctioning seems to aim at getting you to change your conduct in virtue of the reason which made it wrong, so the alignment condition is satisfied. But in sanctioning you, I still seem to be manipulating you. I'm trying to get you to do something for a reason that I don't myself endorse. It would be hard then to see my sanctioning as a proper instance of sanctioning. You know, you might, if I told you don't litter, littering is wrong, you might well respond like, you don't think littering is wrong. <laughs> what are you doing trying to blame me for this? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, 
um, it seems like a clearly disingenuous case of sanctioning. Okay. So before we move on, let's briefly recap the view that I've tried to sketch out. On this view, the which I call the communicative model of sanctioning, sanctioning affirms or vindicates an ought or value in at least two senses. First, it affirms the ought or value publicly. And second, it addresses uh, its affirmation of the ought or value to the wrongdoer. As a form of moral address, sanctioning is then subject to two conditions. First, an alignment condition. Second, a transparency condition. Okay, so we're now set up to see how um, this offers a solution to the problem of sanctioning. Recall that the problem of sanctioning notes that sanctioning seems wrong because it seems incompatible with the participant stance. And this problem arises because of the requirements of the participant stance that we engage with one another through actions like reasoning. On the account that I've just set out, sanctioning seems clearly distinct from reasoning and that it is in some sense forceful. But sanctioning is also distinct from coercion. If I coerce you into doing something, I don't care about why you do it. But as we've just seen, sanctioning involves uh, a lot of ways in which I care about your reasons. I have to try to aim at aligning our reasons and I have to uh, be endorsing a reason to you that I myself accept. Accordingly, if sanctioning is not yet reasoning, we might nevertheless say that it's reason structured. It certainly looks more like reasoning than it does straight coercion. This view of sanctioning then helps us to see how sanctioning might be consistent with the participant stance. Sanctioning here is not the brute imposition of hard treatment or incentives, but instead a unique sort of communicative action structured around a concern for reasons, even if it is not itself reasoning. So it seems we have at least a suggestion of a solution to the second problem, the problem of sanctioning. But that wasn't the problem we began with. Um, in the remaining time, I want to talk about the first problem, which is our central concern today. And I think we're now equipped to see what sort of form a solution to that problem might take. So as we've seen, the problem of forceful protest notes that forceful protest seems wrong because it involves forcing our political beliefs on others. And this problem only seems dangerous if we assume that protest cannot be both forceful and communicative. But the communicative model of sanctioning that I've tried to set out offers an example of a, a kind of action that is both forceful and communicative. So if we interpret some forms of forceful protest as, for, as holding accountable, it seems that those forms of protest will appear to be both forceful and communicative as well. Accordingly, they may serve as a counterexample to the assumption underpinning the problem of forceful protest. This is the basic idea of, uh, behind the view that I'm calling protest as accountable. Okay. That was all very abstract. What do I mean, practically speaking? Well, if protest is, as I've suggested, sometimes a form of holding accountable, then it seems that it can work to, re to affirm or vindicate a value uh, in response to a wrongdoing, just in the same way that sanctioning does. Protest on this understanding of it would be communicative just in the sense that sanctioning is. But further, it would, it would also seem to be the case uh, that such forceful protest is not communicative in spite of, but rather because of its forcefulness. Just as the force of a sanction is part of what makes it uniquely appropriate as a response to wrongdoing, capable of affirming the relevant ought or value in the right way, um, it seems like we can say the same of protest, forceful protest. Like sanctioning then, it would seem that these forms of protest affirm or vindicate a value both generally and in a way that is addressed to a wrongdoer. So in, in concrete examples, it might turn out um, that what protests are doing is affirming a value in response to a wrongdoing and aiming at getting a change in conduct in the future. 
So how does this all help us to answer the problem we began with, the problem of forceful protest? Recall that the problem there was that forceful protest seems wrong because it involves forcing our beliefs on others. And as I suggested then, the problem depends for its plausibility on the claim that protest cannot be both forceful and communicative. But as I've tried to argue, protest, when interpreted as a form of sanctioning, appears to be both forceful and communicative. It may be forceful and that is clearly distinct from things like persuasive protest or peaceful picketing um, and involves a material imposition of costs on its targets. But it may also be communicative in the sense that as a form of sanctioning, its use of force is itself communicative. Some forms of forceful protest then may stand as counterexamples to a key assumption underwriting the problem of forceful protest. And if that's the case, then it seems we have a solution to the problem. But you might wonder at this juncture, it seems like we've sidestepped the biggest problems. We've dealt with what I've called an assumption underlying the problem. But what about the more specific objections? Um, what about uh, the objections that forceful protest is undemocratic, uh, counterproductive, dangerous, or uncivil? I haven't tried to give a direct answer to these problems. I have tried to offer a response to the common assumption, um, but that might not be entirely satisfying. What protest as holding accountable shows us is how it might be possible for an action to look very different from reasoning and yet still count as communicative in some meaningful sense. So as long as the challenges raised count on the assumption that force is, dif is different from communication, it seems that they must fail. But what if they don't depend on that assumption? I think it's hard to say. All the same, to the extent that these challenges are issued on communicative grounds, protest is holding accountable has a ready response. Uh, and I think we can trace out how exactly these um, problems seem to depend on, on the claim itself. So for instance, the objection that forceful protest is undemocratic loses plausibility when forceful protest is understood as reason structure, as a response to a wrong which aims at getting the wrongdoer to take up the relevant reason. Likewise, the case for the effectiveness of forceful protest should change once we recognize its reason-structured nature. Um, it might be the case that forceful protest is not so obviously counterproductive when it turns out that what it's actually doing is addressing a reason to a wrongdoer. All the same, it may still be that in some cases the objections have some force. For instance, if one is con concerned that forceful, uh, forceful protest is likely to impinge on the interests and rights of innocent civilians, um, citizens, then it may seem that the view I have set out, which still allows for the use of forceful protest tactics, is still vulnerable to objection. So some of the objections we've considered may still pose a live challenge, some of the forms of the problem of forceful protest. All the same, it's worth noting that protest is holding accountable gives us a rich language with which to talk about justification. As I've noted, sanctioning a subject to internal alignment and transparency conditions these, it seems that we can say, will also apply in some cases of protest. They'll help us to sort out justified from unjustified cases of protest. Um, for instance, uh, if an act of protest appears to uh, urge a change of con, uh, it appears to try to get a political outcome for a reason which the protest itself does not endorse, then it seems like it would fail by the account that I've just given. Um, but it also seems like there are some kinds of justificatory constraints which we haven't discussed here. Uh, which follow from the nature of uh, sanctioning. For instance, it seems to be, it seems likely that sanctioning ought generally to be in some sense proportionate to wrongdoing. It seems wrong for me to harshly criticize you for a minor mistake. 
likely it seems that my sanctioning has to be directed at the right person. Um, I can't sanction you for littering by yelling at your friend. That doesn't really make sense. Apply to protest then, these constraints suggest that the concerns raised by the objections we've considered may yet be reframed in the language of the view that I've set here. We may be able to formulate them um, in terms of uh, concerns that arise from an understanding of sanctioning. And in so doing, we may get a better insight into um, their normative force, which doesn't itself rely on a concept of force, um, but may have to do with um, the nature and structure of the protest. Okay. So it seems that the communicative model of sanctioning helps us to square sanctioning and the participant attitude. This was the solution to the problem of sanctioning. And the sort of communicative action set out in the communicative model of sanctioning also seems to suggest an answer to the first problem, the problem of forceful protest, albeit as we've noted, potentially a partial one. In conclusion then, there's good reason to take protest as holding accountable seriously. Insofar as this model of protest um, is plausible, it seems to shed light on some deep and difficult problems facing forceful protest and to illuminate the structure of protest in its own terms. Thank you, everyone.